I would like to invite your attention to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and specifically verses 12 and 13, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul teaches us in the book of Romans that God saves us in order to conform us to the image of Christ. So I would ask you, how would you measure yourself against that standard? Are you satisfied with your current level of Christ-likeness? Another way of asking that question is, do you feel like you have arrived as a Christian? Are you satisfied with your progress and sanctification? Do you feel like you're as holy as you should be? And more importantly, as God is ultimately desirous of us to be. And if we're honest, I think all of us would have to admit that we're not satisfied with our progress. We know that we're not in danger of being mistaken for Jesus anytime in the next couple of weeks. Amen. But that's not to say that we haven't made progress. That's not to say that we are not continuing to make progress. We're just not where we want to be and where God is ultimately taking us. We haven't reached the goal that God has set for us. And I realize that we'll never reach it in this life, but just because we can't reach it in this life doesn't give us license or the liberty to stop trying. But many Christians are not sure how they become like Jesus in day-to-day life. They are pretty much clueless, sadly. Many Christians are confused about sanctification and maybe uh, confused even about what the word means. So let me give you a, a working definition of what sanctification is that we will explore here in the coming weeks. Our working definition of sanctification is really very simple. It's becoming like Christ. Sanctification is living out the mind of Christ. Sanctification is progressive growth in holiness. Sanctification brings about a decrease in the frequency of which we sin in our lives. Now, this week, uh, Ligonier published their annual uh, State of Theology, and If you read any parts of it at all, you know how the thinking of the evangelical mind is clearly muddled, and therefore we would expect to find the same kind of confusion as to what sanctification is and how sanctification actually takes place. So how does sanctification work? Let me quickly give you a couple of possibilities. Let me start by asking a question. Is your sanctification all up to you? Is your sanctification based upon your effort and God just stands on the sidelines and kind of roots you on? Does God save you then leave your sanctification solely in your hands? Or does God do it all? Does God say to us, just stand back and watch me work? Is that how sanctification works? 
Well, there are Christians who believe that sanctification is all up to God. Those who hold to these kind of to, to this belief are called quietist. You could think of perhaps the Quakers or the Brethren. They believe, and you'll commonly hear something like this. This is kind of like Keswick theology. Let go and let God. And implied in that statement is, well, God's going to do it all. So therefore, we have little responsibility, but just let God do it. So they believe that the believer is passive in sanctification. They believe that a person who is totally submitted to God and dependent upon God, that God will keep them from sin and lead them into faithful living. Now, this is not uncommon among lots of Christians. Therefore, they would say trying to strive against sin or to discipline oneself in order to produce good works is not only fruitful, uh, futile, excuse me, but unspiritual and counterproductive. They would say that, well, you're at cross purposes with God. If you try and work out your own salvation, you, you find yourself at cross purposes with God. So that's one group. There's another group of Christians who are equally sincere in their beliefs, yet they hold to an exact opposite view of sanctification, where the quietist is passive in sanctification, the pietist is aggressive in sanctification, and I might even say very aggressive in sanctification. And the pietists can be commended for their emphasis that they place on Bible study, for the emphasis that they place on holiness in everyday life. They are to be commended for the emphasis that they place on self-discipline. Pietists, for instance, would look at a verse such as 2 Corinthians 7.1 where Paul wrote, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So they would read that verse and they would see that as a clear call by the Apostle Paul to exert whatever level of human effort is necessary in order to rid themselves of sin. But the, their emphasis is totally on human will. Their emphasis is totally on what they can do in their own strength. They look to the words, say, like James chapter 2, verse 17, it's also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So they read that and they say, oh, I've got to get to work. And so they become very aggressive in their pursuit of holiness and in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. And there is something to be commended about that. As I've said several times here the past few weeks, many Christians need a good shot of aggressiveness in their faith. We are far too passive, not only in our sanctification, but in our witness. We could use a healthy dose of aggressiveness. But it must be an aggressiveness that is properly motivated and an aggressiveness that is properly resourced. So the kind of aggressiveness that should characterize us as Christians is modeled for us by the Apostle Paul. If you still have your Bibles open to Philippians, look at Philippians chapter 3, and let's read verses 12, 13, and 14. This is the kind of aggressiveness that we should have as believers. 
Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and, what's he say, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to read those verses and not see the desire and the effort just kind of oozing out of them. Paul says he presses on. He says he's straining forward to what lies ahead. In other words, Paul is saying, I am in no way, shape, or form. I am not passive nor am I an idle spectator in my sanctification. He says in the clearest possible terms, I take an active role in working out my own salvation. I am an active daily participant in becoming like Christ. And why did he do this? Because he says, Jesus has made him his own. But the pietist like the quietest, makes a fatal error. The error of the quietest is just let go and let God. They remove all human effort from sanctification, while the error of the pietist is their elimination of any divine help. They would never say it this way, but in practice, this is what they're doing. They, would, they are saying, God, I don't need your help in order to become like Christ. I can handle this on my own. I can work out my own salvation. You just cheer me on. They place the emphasis on human effort alone for their sanctification. Now, what happens when we begin to emphasize human effort apart from God's help? You know what happens. The pietist will very quickly become a legalist. They will become self-righteous. They will develop a judgmental attitude towards others. They will often find themselves filled with pride, and ultimately, they don't end up like Christ. They end up as hypocrites because they cannot, despite their best intentions, despite their best efforts, they cannot live up to their own standard much less the standard of God. And many times, they, because they can't live up to their own standard, they become frustrated, and frustration leads to bitterness. And they have unwittingly robbed themselves of joy. So which view is right? What is the biblical view of sanctification? Well, Paul presents the biblical view right here in verses 12 and 13. Sanctification is not either or, meaning it's not either you or God. Sanctification is both God and you. It is God and you working out your own salvation. Now notice, let me be clear about this. Paul does not say work for your salvation, work towards your salvation. He says work out your salvation, the salvation that you already possess. There's nothing in here 
that hints that Paul was saying you've got to work for your salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. No other way. You can't earn it. Stop trying. You will fail. You will doom yourself as you continue to try and earn God's grace through your efforts. All our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. We have absolutely nothing to offer to God, nothing that is pleasing to God. So stop it. That's the message of the gospel. So Paul answers the question of what God's part is and what is God's role in our sanctification and what our part is, what is our role in our sanctification. So our role or our part in sanctification is spelled out in verse 12, and then God's role in our sanctification is spelled out in verse 13. So what we have here is two parties both working for the same goal. It's God's goal for you and I to be conformed to the image of Christ. It is also the goal of every believer to be conformed to the image of Christ. If you do not have the desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, I doubt that you're a Christian. If all you're worried about is escaping the flames of hell, you better check up on your fire insurance policy. When God saved you, he gave you a new, what? Nature. You are a new creation. The old, what happened to the old? Passed away. The new has come. Do you think that part of the new that has come is a desire to be like Christ? Of course it is. Go back to Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Christian's desire. Weak at times, yes, but never non-existent. So we have two parties here working for the same goal, and we see this mutual working in other passages of Scripture. For instance, Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, notice Peter is emphasizing God's role. Peter is emphasizing God's part. Say, well, what has, God, what has God done? Well, God, through his divine power, has granted to us, now notice what he says, all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, God has supplied to us everything, every resource that is needed for you and I to work out our own salvation. He has given to us everything that we need in order to become like Christ, to make progress in holiness, to make progress in Christ-likeness. Peter says that God has granted us every precious and very great promises. So what are we have need of? God has granted to us. And about this time, the quietest would jump up and say, aha, I told you, God does it all. Uh, but what follows verse 4? Well, verse 5, look verses 5 through 10, Peter says, for this very reason, for what very reason, Peter, what I just talked about, make every effort, about this time, the quietest has to slink down, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and, with, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Are you picking up what Peter's laying down? He begins verse 5 by saying, For this very reason, what reason does he have in mind? The reasons he gave there in verses 3 and 4, that God has granted us all things, whatever we need, everything that pertains to life and godliness, that God has granted us these great and precious promises. And because of what God has done, you and I are to, what does Peter say? Make every effort... Who is to make the effort? Just so we're clear, who is to make the effort? You and I are. The believer is. You are to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and etc. And I'll emphasize again what he says in verse 10. Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Peter clearly tells us that part of this is our responsibility. It is our responsibility to work out our own salvation. It is our responsibility to be an active participant excuse me, in our sanctification. So the quiet is his face with a real dilemma. If I'm supposed to let go and let God, yet Peter tells me that I'm to make every effort to supplement my faith, and somebody's wrong. So now we stand at a fork in the road where we have to decide, is my theology wrong? Or am I willing to say that Peter's wrong? Perish the thought that we would ever say that a divinely inspired apostle of Christ is wrong in what he's written in Scripture. So if we hold to this position, and by the way, to hold to either one of these extremes is a tremendous burden for you as a Christian. An incredible burden. Say, how so? Well, let's take the quietest for a moment. If they say, well, I've just got to let go and let God, yet they find themselves continually falling back in the patterns and habits of sin, what is the inevitable conclusion that we have to come to? God must not love me. Or maybe I'm not a believer at all because I'm not making any forward progress. On the other hand, the pietist, he has a tremendous burden because he's trying to do everything in his own strength, in his own effort. It has to be so tiring to live like that spiritually. The spiritual life is a battle as it is. Why do you want to heap on yourself this tremendous burden that you can never satisfy? So it's a burden when we go to either extreme. So Peter clearly emphasizes the role that God plays in our sanctification, while at the same time he clearly emphasizes the role that we play in our sanctification. Let's look at some more biblical evidence. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. Again, the quietest is getting all excited here at this point. He's thinking, aha, I finally, finally found a verse to nail you to the wall. Well, wait a minute. Paul goes on, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, 
I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So what do we have here? God's at work. Paul's at work. And Paul's work is fueled by, motivated by, empowered by what? The grace of God. We look at the Puritans today, and I marvel at the body of work that these fellows produce without a word processor. No computer, no tablet, no electricity, no internet, no nothing that we think that we need today. And they just produce thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. How did they do that? They were fueled by the grace of God. Now, I realize that's an indictment for many of us today. What does that say about our effort? So we see God's part. And when we see Paul's part, make a note of this. Because this is going to be important over the coming weeks here as we look at the 12 and 13. It was the grace of God that fueled Paul's hard work. If you don't walk away with anything else today, walk away with that truth. It was the grace of God that fueled Paul's hard work. God's effort, Paul's effort, we see them both. Now, we know in Scripture that uh, there are things called paradoxes. We have two truths that are equally true, but yet our finite human minds struggle to reconcile them. We simply can't come to grips with the fact that both truths are equally true. So we have a paradox here. Let's, we'll admit that. But this is not the only paradox in Scripture. There are others. Say, what do we do with a paradox? Do we debate it? Do we write all kinds of papers? Do we chastise those who perhaps disagree with us on a small point or something? No, here's what we need to do. As humans, we must humble ourselves before the Word of God and accept the fact that, this, that despite our lack of understanding, truths that seem to contradict one another are equally true. And we leave it at that. They are only apparent contradictions to the human mind. They are only apparent contradictions to our limited mind, intellects, and understanding. And the quicker you come to grips with this reality, guess what? The quicker you will make progress in Christ-likeness. The quicker you come to grips with this reality, the quicker you will start to grow spiritually. You will accelerate your spiritual growth. Why? You're not spending all of your time and energy on something that you're not going to figure out anyway. So therefore, you can put your energy where it needs to be, and that is growing in godliness. Let me give you another example. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we are to submit ourselves to God. But then what else are we to do? Resist the devil, and he will flee. God's role, man's role. Now, let me take you back to the Old Testament. I, I, I love this account. If you go to Exodus chapter 13 with me. Exodus chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 13 down through 16. Exodus chapter 14, excuse me, I say 13, 14. Sorry, Exodus 14. If I start reading 14 and you're in 13, we'll all be confused. Exodus 14, verses 13 through 16. Here's a scene. The children of Israel are fleeing the land of Egypt. 
And God leads them to the shore of the Red Sea. The water's in front of them, and the Egyptian army is uh, hot, on, hot in pursuit behind them. The people are afraid. They wonder why God has brought them, has led them there. They wonder what kind of a mess has Moses gotten them into. In fact, they said to Moses, hey, weren't there any graves in Egypt? Did you have to bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Well, Moses responded to them, beginning in verse 13, Exodus 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, just try and put yourself in the shoes of these folks. Can you imagine what they must have been thinking? Fear not. You got to be kidding. We've got nowhere to go. It sure looks like we're going to die. Fear not. Stand firm. Again, you've got to be kidding. I'm ready to drop everything and run. Every man for himself. But remember, God said that he would fight for them. Notice the last part of verse 14. And you have only to be silent. So God says to the people through Moses, fear not. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. Then in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Wait a minute. Stand firm. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, I wouldn't be surprised and I wouldn't... I wouldn't uh, uh, think less of you if you're just a little bit confused at this point. I mean, fear not, stand firm, the Lord will fight for you. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Which is it? What do you want me to do here, God? Well, God would fight for them. Now, mark this. God would fight for them as they moved forward. That's clear. Say, well, what does the, what's the meaning of stand firm? I believe that God was saying to the people, stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your trust. Don't be the double-minded man that James talks about. Stand firm. Believe me. Trust me. And in a sign of their trust was what? Stepping out. As long as they stood there, they weren't demonstrating any trust. They weren't demonstrating any faith in God. God parts the seas. It's dry. But until they put the first toe into the sand, they were not trusting God. But the moment they stepped out and began to cross, what? They were trusting God. Therefore, they knew that God would indeed fight for them. The waters through which Israel would pass would deliver them, while the same waters through which the Egyptians would try to pass would be their doom. What do we see? God's role, Israel's role, both were necessary. So about this time, you're probably thinking, all right, what does, what does any of this have to do with our sanctification? Well, keep in mind that sanctification is the believer becoming more and more like Christ. Sanctification is the process that God uses to conform us to the image of Christ. In our sanctification, God is at work while we are at work. 
Now, here's the good news. Whatever God requires of us in our sanctification, God graciously provides for us. In other words, God is not going to ask you to do something that he's not going to give you the resources in order to do it. So when Paul says to the church at Philippi and to all believers at all times at all places, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, we know that God is going to do what? He's going to give us everything that we need in order to fulfill that command, in order for us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Whatever God asks us to do, he will give us the resources to do. That is a what? That's a liberating truth, isn't it? Because now, what do I have to do? Where does all of my effort have to go? Where do I direct all of my focus? Where do I direct all of my attention? I direct all of that to the resources that God has already provided for me. I don't have to get up at 4.30 in the morning and try and read 20 pages of Scripture in order to try and please God and grow in sanctification, grow in holiness. Now, if that's what God leads you to do, have at it. But God will give you everything that you need in order to work out your own salvation. So what has God provided for us? And I obviously don't have time to go much further this morning. Let me give you one thing. Number one, God has given us an example. Uh, Homilex uh, professors will say, never have a one-point sermon. Well, I just failed. We got one point. Here's, a, here's the first point. We have the example of Jesus. What has God provided for us to help us work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He has given us the example of Jesus. Look at how verse 12 starts there. Therefore, therefore always does what? what it's, it's like a big flashing red neon sign in Scripture. Therefore always points back to something that has just been said, that's previously been said. So Paul says, therefore, in other words, in light of what I have just written to you, Therefore, move forward. Okay. So Paul begins by teaching them about sanctification, by pointing them to the obedience of Christ. Again, Paul uses that word to point them back to what he has just written about Jesus. And what did Paul teach them about Jesus? Well, he taught them about the humility of Jesus. He taught them how that Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not think that equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing that he had to cling on to, but he humbled himself. And how did he humble himself? By taking on the form, the very nature, the essence of a servant, but not just any kind of servant, a bondservant. And he became obedient, but not just any obedience. He became obedient to the point of death, but not just any old death, even death on a cross. That's the example. That's the starting point for our sanctification outside of our salvation. Now we have been saved. We are uh, assured of that. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been justified. We have been adopted. And now we are being sanctified. And so what do, who do we look to? We look to the example of Christ. We look to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, so what's the point here? The point is, sanctification requires obedience. 
say, well, that's not very earth-shattering. I know it's not. But it is very necessary. In other words, as long as you continue to disobey God's revealed will in his revealed word, you will never make any progress in sanctification. If you feel like it's always one step forward and 20 steps back, look at your level of obedience. Are you obeying what God has clearly asked you to do in the Scriptures? If you're not, listen, you can, do, you can try and look for a formula. You can try and self-discipline yourself so you're the most disciplined person in the world. But if you're not obeying God's revealed will and His Word, you're not going to grow in holiness. You're not going to grow in true holiness and righteousness. You may grow in self-righteousness. You may grow in pride. But as you do, you're growing away from being like Christ. See? And in this process of sanctification, there are both positives and there are negatives. There are negatives. There are commands in the Scripture to stop doing sinful things, to stop doing those things that are displeasing to the Lord. And there are also positive commands to start doing things those things that are pleasing to the Lord. That's the essence of sanctification. You stop doing the sinful things, you start doing the things that please God. That's where it begins. It begins with our obedience. Say, well, how do I know what God wants me to stop doing, and how do I know what God wants me to start doing? It's all here. You don't have to go on a treasure hunt. You don't have to go on some quest. You're not looking for a secret decoder ring. There's nobody out there who's, who's uh, got the key to unlock this for you. It's right here. Everything that you need for life and godliness is right here. So let me say this. I'll say this and probably have to duck. If you're never reading the Scriptures, you're not being sanctified. Why? Because here is where you find what you need to stop doing and start doing in order to grow in Christ-likeness. And if you ignore God's Word, you're operating blind. Say, so, ah, oh, you're legalistic about reading the Scriptures. No, I'm not. This is a means of grace that God has given to us that facilitates, that helps us grow in Christ-likeness. Therefore, to ignore it is to do harm to ourselves. Paul also urged the Philippians to continue to obey just as they had always obeyed. The point is, they were not to base their obedience upon the physical presence of Paul. Paul says, whether I'm in town or not, you still need to follow the example of Jesus and live in obedience. Think back to your time in school. For some of us, that's way back, but anyway, we'll give it a shot. What happened when the teacher had to step out of class for a few moments? Right? Things has got crazy, as O.C.O. would say. They just go crazy. I mean, the class clown would start acting up. People start passing notes. Someone get up and, and go talk to his girlfriend. Why? Because the teacher's not there. What do they say? When a cat's away, the mice will play. Oh, but I'm an adult. That, that's insulting that you would even say that to me. Okay. 
All right. My wife's a, a manager. She's been a manager for a long time. And uh, she occasionally has her employees encourage her to take a day off or to leave early. You think they're being altruistic towards my wife? No, no, no. She knows if she leaves early or she doesn't come in a day, she knows what's going to happen. Party time at Chase. Do whatever we want to do. It's just human nature. But Paul encourages them to maintain the same level of obedience they displayed while he was there among them. My pastor said this years ago, and I've never forgotten it. And I'm paraphrasing what he said. But I should always act, you as a Christian should always act as if the physical presence of Jesus was right next to you. Because guess what? The spiritual presence of Jesus is within you. We do not sin in a vacuum. We may commit a sin in the dark, but it's in the light of God's truth. So Paul encourages them to have the same level, the same intensity of obedience, even though I'm not there, as if I were there. So I'll explore the rest of the verse at a later time. But let me finish this morning by answering the question you may be thinking. Say, now wait a minute. For the past several weeks, we've been talking about humility. We've been talking about unity. We've been talking about getting along with one another in the church. What in the world does sanctification have to do with unity? Everything. Everything. Uh, the little spoiler alert. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling after he has just spent chapters 1 and 2 dealing with what? Unity. So you'd have to be blind to not see that one of the facets of working out our own salvation is what? Unity. Living in unity. And I've said that all along, for us as believers to live in unity, we must obey the Lord's command to live in unity. Unity comes down to obedience. Sanctification comes down to obedience. And again, keeping the context of the passage in mind, we have to conclude that part of the working out of our salvation is living together with humility, which allows us to live in unity. Therefore, when the members of the church are not living in unity, when strife and discord characterize the church, when there is no harmony in the church, guess what else is not happening in the church? Sanctification. Sanctification. And I hope you're beginning to see the church is one of God's chosen means in your sanctification. Don't blow that off. The church is one of God's chosen means in your sanctification. And I would say a large part. So sanctification is working out your own salvation. Is God giving you both the desire and the ability to put to death the sinful deeds of the flesh while at the same time you act on the desire God gives you and you use the ability, the power that he makes available to you that equips you to put to death the sinful deeds of the flesh. And that, beloved, is how you work out your salvation with fear and trembling.